0: Welcome to a new episode of the New Books Network. My name is Victor Manin, and today I'm welcoming Robin Davignon, Assistant Professor of History at New York University, to discuss her new book, uh, Ritual Geology, Gold and Subterranean Knowledge in Savannah, West Africa, published with uh, the Duke University Press. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for coming on the New Books Network. I'm really excited uh, about this, uh, this conversation. And uh, before we start delving into the book, I I always like to um, kind of situate the book itself within uh, the author's own journey and how the history of the book actually came about. And uh, you emphasize a lot that this book has been, uh, well, stemmed from many years of research, obviously, but also travels, friendships, uh, interviews. Um, So uh, why don't you take us through that journey a little bit so we get a sense of where that box is coming from.
1: Great. Well, Victor, I want to begin by thanking you so much for inviting me to be part of this conversation. It's really an honor to get to talk about the book now that it exists and is circulating in the world, but also to engage and think with your own research on the history of paleontology. Um, a very different, um, though, you know, a very complementary approach to thinking about the underground and its varied meanings um, to different historical actors and scientists. So, this is really a pleasure for me. So, um, yeah. I mean, this is very much a book that has emerged um, from my experiences um, over the past almost 20 years now. <laughs> um, I, it, it, it really emerges uh, from my biography outside of the academy. I was um, a Peace Corps volunteer in Southeastern Senegal for a couple years before I decided to pursue a PhD. Um and prior to joining the Peace Corps, I had majored in anthropology and had actually done field research amongst contract chicken farmers in rural Missouri, um, so like a very different trajectory. I um, was very interested in agrarian movements in the United States and had a long-standing interest in going to Francophone West Africa, and the Peace Corps ended up operating you know, providing an opportunity to do that, um, I was an agriculture volunteer in southeastern Senegal. And, um, you know, I went into the Peace Corps in many respects with very critical about the institution and unsure how well it was going to suit my sensibilities. Um, but in many ways, um, uh, you know, it ended up being a transformative uh, life experience. I was based in a small Pular village in southeastern Senegal. And I also spent a year working with urban. Gardeners in the town of Kédagu which is central to, um, which is central to my book, a ritual geology, and I was there really at a moment of massive transformation when this region was becoming the heart um, of what is today Senegal's uh, corporate gold mining industry, and so there was new exploration camps opening, there was new roads being built, um, and it was shortly after my time there that the first. Um, open pit corporate mine officially opened its doors and began operations. So it was a time of great hope and expectation in many ways about what this mining industry was going to do. Um, There was a lot of expectations for formal employment in the mines, particularly among young men. This is Senegal's poorest region um, and furthest from the capital and other infrastructures. So it has historically been a place where people often migrated to find any sort of stable waged work. Um, so there was a lot of excitement, and but very quickly, as in many global mining frontiers, it became clear that the way that corporate mining operates today requires very few Um, actual employed laborers beyond a very few number of skilled technicians. This is something James Ferguson, the anthropologist, has written about in very pithy and powerful ways um, in his his books. Um, So what ended up happening, and I began to witness that during my time um, in the Peace Corps, but also in subsequent years when I returned, is that a lot of agrarian residents began to retrench their engagement in what had been historically um, a regional uh, gold mining economy, which gets glossed as artisanal, quote unquote, like artisanal gold mining in English and what is known as orpaillage in French West Africa, which was a term introduced during the colonial period to describe largely gold panning for alluvial gold flakes. And um, I was well aware that this was a part of the world that had a very old gold mining history um, associated with the rise of medieval empires and the trans-Saharan gold trade. Um, But it was, uh, you know, I was kind of watching in live time as folks that I was living with and friends and neighbors um, were beginning to expand and deepen their engagement with um, what had historically been a seasonal complement to agriculture, something folks would do for a few months of the year. Um, But as the corporate uh, mining industry expanded, people also began to expand their engagement in Orpayage. And what became very clear was that, in fact, this this was a competitive... Mineral frontier in which um, different uh, actors in this mineral sector were were competing in a zero sum game for the same resource, but under very different material conditions. Um, and you know, initially, I um, you know I had an interest in history, but I my training was in anthropology. But it was really in talking with people. Um, you know, as I was witnessing these transformations, asking them about their experiences in the mines, both the artisanal mines and corporate mines. Um, that people began to just talk more and more about the past to me, you know, and about the fact that this was not the first time that there had been expatriate geologists and mining engineers working in the region, but that their fathers and grandfathers had worked for different generations of geologists, Senegalese geologists, French geologists under French colonial rule, but also Soviet geologists, Belgian geologists during the early decades of independence when um, the Senegalese state recruited expatriate um, scientists to help them map their newly national mineral endowments. Um, and they also spoke to the antiquity of their own engagement, um, with mining on a household level and on a village level and, um, you know, claiming that they in fact had been the ones to discover gold deposits that were now being exploited by multinational corporations. Um, so it was really these stories and these accusations and these sorts of circulating rumors and theories about discovery in the past that got me really, really interested in digging more <laughs> – didn't mean that as a pun, mining puns abound in this business – but. Um, you know, into this history and really understanding it, and I and I realized that my own training at the time um, that I really, really needed um, training in history if I was to understand this part of the world that I had become very personally invested in, um, and that eventually, though not immediately, took me through the process of pursuing a PhD. Um, which I pursued at the University of Michigan in a joint program in anthropology and history and returned to this region of Senegal for almost two years during my doctorate program to carry out more in-depth research. Um, at that time, having much more training in history, much more sense of debates and historiography and had been introduced to the history of science and various other things. Um, so I also had a different set of questions you know, that I came back to the field with. Um, and I conducted ethnography, uh, for the book. I lived in artisanal gold mining villages, but I also spent time in gold exploration camps with geologists. Um, I also spent time interviewing, um, government officials and, uh, you know, various um, folks working for, you know, different branches of the mining industry, um, ritual experts, scientists, uh, village chiefs, um, you know, trying to understand um, not only what was transpiring in the present day, um, which was growing conflict between artisanal gold miners and corporate mining interests, but trying to understand that this was actually part of a much deeper genealogy. Um, and a much deeper history about not just African gold mining, but the interaction between West African societies um, that were seeking Uh, gold deposits and mining them and a whole host of different expatriate and then later state level, but Senegalese, um, in this case, interests um, in gold as well. So that was kind of the origin story of the book um, and a bit long winded, but it took me through many um, you know, different chapters of my own life and friendships at this point in time and relationships, um, particularly with people in southeastern Senegal um, that now, you know, are 15 years old. And, you know, <laughs> um, so the book feels like it's very much built uh, quite literally on the backs of, of of many friends and significant investment in me and, um, uh, you know, over the course of many years.
0: No, that's, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for, for going through this. And also for like, uh, the 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 time that it took to to come up with uh, what I think is uh, such an a great contribution actually to uh, not only to the earth sciences but to the history of geology in general this concept of ritual geology and you briefly mentioned that uh, there's this vernier uh, or this a slightly degrading way of talking about uh, the uh, local knowledge of, uh, of uh, West Africans about the subterranean and calling it artisanal mining. And I feel like in a way, uh, but maybe you'll correct me on this, but I feel like you've tried to take both term artisanal mining and find the, the opposite of each, or at least uh, the more um, um, uh, noble of each uh, opposite, which is instead of saying uh, 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 traditional or uh, you will say ritual, and instead of saying simply mining the technical kind of uh, knowledge, you said geology, which implies obviously uh, the idea of um, scientific knowledge or at least some sort of constructed knowledge and not just um, ex- experiential knowledge. I would say. So, so could you like take us to uh, maybe what you mean by ritual geology here? And how did you end up coining that that term? Where did you wh- where did you find that spark? <laughs> At which point did you say, okay, this is the term that will allow uh, me and my reader to really understand what is going on uh, in this region, what has been going on in this in this region?
1: Yeah, thank you so much for that question. So I'm gonna answer it a bit through the back door about some of the other arguments in the book. It was pretty late in the writing process that I sort of landed on that. Um, Term I, some of the core arguments um, of the book are about, um, or, or, or rather, I should say, one of the core goals of the book was that African miners, both artisanal miners, but also African miners working for corporations, you know, um, or the state, um, have been. Treated um, most often in the historiography as workers, um, in some cases victims of land al- alienation and exploitation, um, that sort of thing. And I think that's also very informed by the fact that a lot of the historiography and mining really emerges out of a Marxist tradition. And those are, of course, like appropriate and important topics um, to address. However, um absent from conversations on mining in Africa was a discussion about mining as an enterprise um, particularly indigenous mining traditions in this case uh, that is also about producing and seeking knowledge um, of the underground of minerals how to transform them etc and this is a thing of course that archaeologists have been talking about for a very long time um, but that conversation really hasn't been one that has been in close dialogue with what historians have written about or anthropologists even have written about, you know, who are working on more contemporary periods. So... In terms of, you know, artisanal miners, um, and in many cases, theirs is a history of criminalization. Um, This starts under colonial rule in sub-Saharan Africa, but this narrative applies more generally to much of the formerly colonized world, what we today call the Global South. Um, A lot of colonial regimes outlawed any form of mining that wasn't a formalized concession That was, uh, you know, issued by the state, right? So, for example, mining by Africans was completely criminalized in South Africa with the formation of the South African Union by 1910. This is the case as well in the Congo and a number of other territories. Um, So, it is in this colonial history, um, which is, of course, very much also a history of. Um, the conquest of land and the criminalization of certain kinds of uses of the natural world—that um, the very category, I argue, of the artisanal miner even sort of comes about. So it is a category, both a regulatory category, but also a category that's used to, uh, you know, th- that we use to talk about mining by for most of history <laughs> in most parts of the world, which is a more labor-intensive, um, kin-based, flexible, mobile forms of mining. Mining that have characterized um, global mining historically. Um, uh, its history is very much entangled with a denigration of these practices um, in the, the kind of racism of colonial era, era laws, etc. So. A lot of what I was trying to do in the book was to tell the history of laws that had led to the denigration in various ways um, of artisanal mining economies, but also to tell um, a history about the forms of knowledge that artisanal miners produce now, so the questions that most interested me initially were those of the law and science <laughs> um, and getting those questions into the conversation. But the issues that most interested the people I was talking to in West Africa about these histories, um, were a lot of the ritual aspects of mining. It's, um, completely saturated with the occult, um, with concerns about, um, spirits that haunt particular territories and haunt particular ore bodies and water bodies. And initially these were things that I was very reticent to discuss because I felt ill-prepared really to be, the person to analyze or understand these things. And in some ways, I was also very worried about replicating a kind of exoticization of African technological practice as something that was somehow steeped in ritual or beliefs rather than something that was, you know, epistemologically informed and pragmatic and sophisticated, um, because this was exactly the sort of language that was used um, in travelogues and later by colonial era officials in ways to denigrate African technological. Technological practice was to say that it's superstitious and, you know, it's, it's full of magic, but that it's not actually practical, it's not efficient, it's not modern. Um, so it took me a long time to feel comfortable with talking about ritual practice in the same framework as technological and scientific practice and scientific production. But of course, those things are developed in dialogue around the world, you know, this is not specific to Africa, of course, by any stretch of the imagination. And it is core to how people understand in particular, um, minerals and other substances that are lodged underground, um, including water, for example, the search for water and aquifers, other things like salt, other kinds of minerals like iron, many of these things are are very ritualized historically, in um, different African contexts. So for me, it took a long time to sort of land on this concept, a ritual geology. But what it helped me to explain was the fact that there, and as I define it in the book, as I think a set of practices and prohibitions, um, techniques, um, and ritual ideologies that are shared along a geological belt. So what I was observing, both through the archival record, but also through oral traditions, is a great degree of uniformity across time and different places about how people We're talking about gold as something that was in the hands of spirits, including spirit snakes that have specific names that are found in stories spread across the wider region of West Africa, um, Savannah, West Africa, and the Sahel in particular. um, Was that these stories about um, the spirited, like underground, um, the subterranean world? were in fact elaborated around places where gold was found, which of course was found along a specific geological body, um, and that it fell short of constituting a religion. You know, this wasn't people weren't ever talking about their practices and their relationship to gold as a religion. There were ritual figures that were in charge of gold, um, but that was not like anyone's claim to the entirety of their ritual world, right? And people could dip in and out of being engaged with this ritual practice. So what I found to be really useful about this concept was that it helped me describe the sort of active and evolving ways in which you know, a certain kind of epistemology about the underground, certain techniques for mining, but also certain specific ritual offices and engagements with the earth were shared across time and across this vast geological body in West Africa by folks that were from a lot of different religious backgrounds Muslims and non Muslims, you know, Christians and um, a lot of different ethnic groups as well, Maninka and Pular, Soninke, um, etc. cetera, um, Wolof in some cases, Badik, Basari. Um, Um, That uh, as something that they engaged with, right, um, in a ritualized way, um, without it being a religion as such. So um, a ritual geology helped kind of get at that phenomenon. Um, And I also think it sort of opened up for me a space to ask, like, what are other ritual geologies that might exist elsewhere in the world, right? Um, be they where yeah. folks in Latin America are mining gold across like a shared geological body, you know, um, we know that a lot of those practices are highly ritualized, um, but we usually study these practices in a single city, a single village, a single country. So by thinking geologically, it also opens up different spaces in which to investigate historical. Historical phenomenon. Perhaps if we're looking at um, a geological formation rather than thinking about something in a national boundary, we might see different things in the archival record, right? Or we might see different connections across oral histories or oral traditions, um, or even in the archaeological record, for example.
0: Yeah, that was that, that was a, a question that I was actually about to ask, but you you, you came up with um, with an answer to it, or at least a remark to it. Is uh, the title is a ritual? geology. Uh, and so it, it implies that maybe there are others. And I think what I thought ex- extremely interesting about that concept is obviously it's um, it's inner tension. It's, it sounds like an oxymoron, especially if we are uh, referring to uh, what you mentioned, the, um, the degrading, demeaning uh, connotation uh, coming from the colonial uh, heritage of uh, words like ritual. And the idea that on the contrary, geology uh, is a logos so it it pertains to uh, reason it pertains to uh the western world right so there is also a very interesting tension here where i think we could also eventually talk about uh while reading the book i was thinking what is the ritual geology of corporate mining because it seems like there is this this idea that uh the ritual is is not uh cannot be part um cannot be a a function or a factor in uh, um, corporate mining, uh, but but reading your book, I think we end up asking that question back to uh, to, to corporate mining as well. Um, so, I mean, you already touched on this, so I, I just want to jump to that question uh, of, um, of of yeah, organizing your book around a specific geological formation, and I think you were mentioning uh, your your training in in history. Uh, uh, d- during your phd and I think that's one of the most fundamental and difficult uh, historiographical question is uh, the where <laughs> where do we uh, start a history uh, from where are we t- taking that history and usually as you mentioned it's uh, well it tends to be uh, regional boundaries or national boundaries so we think, mostly of uh, space as being divided um, based on the surface, what ha- what's happening on the surface. But we really think about the possibility for geological formations uh, to actually be uh, interesting historiographical units. So could you just expand a little bit on, maybe when did that idea come from for you? Because your experience, as you mentioned, was mostly in South Senegal at first. So maybe you started with a more national or regional approach? When when did you shift to uh, that geological approach and when did it make sense to you and why?
1: Yeah. No, I really appreciate that question. And it also sort of happens slowly. So as I did mention before, I mean, so I made a couple really specific decisions with scale uh, and how I was going to narrate the story that emerged over time. So it was very much rooted, as I mentioned from the onset, in long-term ethnographic research and oral histories in southeastern Senegal, which is really the heart of my study. The book begins and ends there. But the middle chapters open onto um, the history of gold mining and the search for gold and colonial administration and, you know, all the, um, all of these things, um, in a much larger, um, on a much larger geography, which are the historic gold fields that were spread across, um, what is today known as the Beremian Greenstone belt of Savannah, West Africa. So, um, I was interested from the start, I mean, particularly when I was looking at the colonial period because the Federation of French West Africa, um, the French colonized many of the historic uh, goldfields of, of West Africa, the medieval and Atlantic era goldfields of West Africa, which had been also the initial reason why Europeans starting with the Portuguese sailed to West Africa was an, was an attempt to create a direct pathway to the goldfields rather than one that went across the Sahara and many, many middlemen in between. So, um, I was very familiar with some of these gold fields. One is found straddling the border of Senegal and Mali. It was historically known as Bambouk. Another very famous one is Bure in contemporary Guinea and parts of southern Mali. Um, But it took me a while because I wasn't trained as a geologist. And this wasn't the way things were spoken about even in the archives to realize, well, (laughs) like, you know, these aren't just isolated gold fields, right? Like if you map a geological map, (laughs) you know, onto these territories, including the historic maps of French West Africa, you start to see the patterns that these are shear zones um, where gold mineralization and other kinds of minerals as well are likely to be found. Um, And there's certain ways that that tracks with what the landscape looks like as well, you know, which would have been very self-evident to people historically who are migrating and moving across the landscape. These are broken places where there's lots of plateaus and ravines. These are also places where there tends to be bodies of water, um, sometimes even running parallel to the shear zone. So the geology has a way of shaping the entire landscape in ways that have been fundamentally important to human settlement and exploitation of the environment far beyond the concerns of just gold. Um, So it, it kind of took me a while. At first, when I was looking at the colonial period, but then as I began to push, I began to push my timeline deeper and deeper and deeper because I realized that in order to understand transformations that had happened um, with artisanal and corporate gold mining and the state regulation of it in the 20th century required understanding this West African gold mining tradition in far greater antiquity. Um, and so it was kind of, you know, really also through conversations with geologists, exploration geologists in the present day day where they were kind of telling me like, oh, yeah, we know that all of these Maninka villages um, are most likely located on gold sources because people historically moved to these places looking for gold and they kind of knew what sort of landscapes and things would contain gold. And so they set up shop to search for it. And so as I got kind of a better sense of how they were reading the landscape and also how corporations today are thinking about these transnational geological bodies in very um, targeted ways. You know, they know, you know, where the, you know, the formations that they're like, oh, well, we have, you know, we have a camp here in Senegal. We have a camp here in Burkina Faso. These are the ways in which these rocks are similar or different. Um, you know, it really kind of got me thinking about how West Africans who exploited these minerals historically were also moving across this landscape. Were also making these same kinds of connections across space Um, So that led to me pushing both the temporality of the book deeper in time to think and to go back to the medieval period to better understand, you know, where were people exploiting gold? What were the connections across these gold fields? As far as we are able to know, Um, the evidence is relatively thin still, but growing. Um, And through the Atlantic era, where all of a sudden you have a much thicker documentary record where, um, you know, of European explorers and also oral traditions, um, you know, about this period. And it also led to an expansion of my geography. So while I stayed rooted in Southeastern Senegal, I kind of like expanded the geography and the temporality of the book to show the ways that this was actually part of a much bigger conversation across space. But it was also had, was also very adapted to very specific local political um, and ecological conditions So that there is this ritual geology shared across space, but each locality and region had its own flavor and its own history and its own articulation of that. Um, so yeah, I think I think it was through the research that I realized that both my geography and my temporality needed to be broader than I had maybe originally conceived of the project, or even dared to conceive of the project in part two. Um, and it took a while to tame it, and it took a while to to figure out how to narrate those shifts in time and space.
0: I think I think this is really to me a very very fascinating question because. Um, uh, Maybe one of the one of the tricky thing to navigate, uh, if we are using geology as this uh, historiographical unit, is the idea that we might fall into a form of determinism, and uh, if uh, okay, if that geological formation is shared across a certain amount of uh, borderlands, then uh, we should find exactly the same thing along that borderlands. Uh, but obviously, you you already mentioned that there, um, although you're talking about a ritual geology, that ritual geology actually encompasses a lot of different uh, changes across time and changes across space as well. So how did you navigate this, right? This risk of a a certain natural determinism, while at the same time, we can understand, of course, like the value of um, using uh, geological formation at this historiographical unit, instead of sticking to uh, more traditional, I would say units.
1: Yeah. No. I mean, definitely, ecological determinism is not the uh, is not the hope for endpoint of using this this analytic, and it was a pitfall I was well aware of. I mean, I was trained in ecological anthropology, where this had been at you know a generation of this kind of scholarship had really fallen prey to that sort of thing. Like, if people raise pigs, then this is the way that their society is going to unfold, et cetera. Um, on the other hand. The more that I began to work with the analytic and the fact of geology, um, the more I realized that it was still really a blind spot for historians, you know, that it, even amongst environmental historians, this hasn't really been a unit of analysis that folks have explored at depth. I think they're starting to, um, but rivers, oceans, archipelagos, that sort of thing. I mean, this is now kind of standard stock in environmental history, and we have a lot of sophisticated ways of understanding the ways that people relate to Delta and rivers and things like that in ways that are far from determined. Um, and in fact, much of the field of environmental history has dedicated itself to understanding the complexity of like human environment relationships. And that very little is determined strictly by um, the eco- ecological setting in which uh, a group of people find themselves in. So I what I'm hoping is that this book will introduce uh, more of a historical conversation you know about the degree to which this the degree to which thinking geologically as it were um you know, thinking about geological bodies and formations um, can be useful for asking certain kinds of questions. It's not a one size fits all. It's not, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't help us answer certain, um, you know, queries about political or religious formation. But I think it could take us really far in thinking about, um, particularly in places where certain resources have been highly concentrated in particular parts of the landscape. So they have become point sources where political or ritual authority could be exercised over controlling them Um, in much of the Sahara and parts of the Sahel I think this is the case for aquifers and water and that's very much determined um, in many cases by um, you know, geological formations, um, that people have very sophisticated traditions of reading the landscape to, to understand where they might find water and what's involved with accessing it both materially and ritually. Um, so I think it, I really think this, I hope, is the beginning of a conversation. There was a lot of things that I really only began to ask in the writing of this book that I hope other scholars, you know, thinking with this idea earlier in a project um, might get a lot further with theorizing what some of these different relationships might be in different parts of the world.
2: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
0: No, I, absolutely. I, I, as, as you're talking, I was also thinking about, uh, like, for my, my own sake, for example, the history of paleontology, how it, obviously certain formations are... Holding uh, some kinds of uh, some kinds of species of bones or bones or certain periods, and that could al- obviously determine a lot of that history, but at least start a conversation on how the development of a certain science or a certain frontier for research has been has been developed. So, I mean, I absolutely, and I think that was once again one of the most interesting feature of the book: this uh, this uh, focus on uh, a ge- uh, geological formation. Uh, now, more speaking more uh, less uh, spatially, but more uh, temporarily, um, and you've already kind of um, uh, talked a bit about that, but I think what's interesting about the book is that it starts with uh, a first chapter uh, describing uh, essentially what you talked about in in the presentation of the, gen- the genesis of your book, uh, that contemporary context, um, in uh, and you focus in the chapter especially on Tinkoto village in Senegal, um, where there is this contrast between corporate mining and more uh, seasonal or uh, traditional mining. and uh, But what's interesting is that this contrast is not set only uh, in terms of techniques or material means, but also obviously in different epistemologies, way of engaging with the earth. Uh, but what I found also extremely interesting is also different ways of valuing gold. Um, and we usually take that for granted, as you mentioned quite often in your book. Um but then you take us to a very long hist- historical journey, uh, starting with the, uh, uh, the um, 900s. Uh, so, uh, so, and, and then we work our way back to the present. And I think uh, this is such an interesting dynamic in the book. So uh, could you maybe just expand uh, a little bit on the necessity uh, for you to uh, go back a thousand years based on uh, what you were experiencing seeing in the present? For us,
1: yeah, no, definitely, and I also took me a while just since we're also talking about the guts of how a book is made to come up with that organization um So the reason I needed to go back that far in time is quite specific to gold in this part of the world, which is that it is a mineral that West African societies have been mining intermittently for a millennium. There are very, very few mineral industries that remain active in the world that have that kind of antiquity, right? So it's certainly not a proposition that all histories of West Africa, you know, need to do that kind of deep time work. What was also unusual and what I was a Afforded as a historian is that because gold was so valued, because it was the object of the trans-Saharan trade uh, for for hundreds of years, that it did leave an archival record, and it has also been a focus um, of a growing corpus of archaeological research. So I had the advantage that there were sources on gold, like even though they're very fragmentary for these early centuries. Whereas if you wanted to do a deep time history of certain African religious formations. You you just simply wouldn't have the source material to do that kind of deep time work, unless you were doing um, historical linguistics. But even that, you know, has limitations, and for a number of reasons, is far less developed in most of the West African settings that I work in. So it was both that it was possible to do it, but also I felt that it was doing it was necessary to do justice to understand the different temporal horizons, not just on which you know the search for subterranean knowledge has unfolded, but the different temporal horizons that actors in the present day refer to when making arguments about their moral or legal claims to gold. And by actors, I'm mostly talking here about artisanal gold miners or orpire, who in many cases, their claims to gold are not legally recognized by the law, but they are in many respects recognized in a moral register by the government, and they are often given kind of de facto access to these gold deposits. And I talk about that later in the book and some of the dynamics around that. But I felt that it was really important to trace out for the reader something about this deep history in order to understand the valence of contemporary arguments about this about this. This historicity, you know, that um, orpire and the present day are making arguments about the early independence period. They're making arguments about the colonial period. And sometimes they're making arguments about the fact that people have been mining gold for a millennium in this corner of the world. Um, but that deep time perspective was also necessary to trace out the elements of the ritual geology that I describe in the book. And what was important to me about that was to show that this was a uh, you know, like a West African gold mining tradition and that word tradition, which I complicate in the book um, could be used to apply to any mining tradition globally. It has nothing to do with the customary or the local. Um, uh, But, um, but, I was trying to really trace out the core elements um, involved with this set of practices, both materially, um, but also in terms of the more ritualized understandings of gold in the underworld that had proliferated and evolved and spread um, across the Berymian Greenstone Belt. And in order to do that, that required this like deeper temporal scale, but it was also possible to do that deeper temporal scale in ways that for many other questions one might have about West African history would be very hard to access.
0: How can we understand then if there's such a, if there's a millennia of history, right? How could we understand that this ritual geology essentially at least, uh, as you mentioned, for not necessarily for archaeologists, but at least for uh, historians and, and anthropologists or uh, environmental historians, um, became in a way uh, lost when uh, you mentioned in many parts of the books that that obviously that ritual geology, that uh, very long acquired knowledge uh, through this um, through this geological formation, uh, served. A lot of French geologists during the colonial period uh, served as well. A lot of, for example, Soviet geologists after the independence uh, in the mid twentieth century. So there's a lot of encounters that you that you talk about in the um, the last two three chapters of the book. So uh, yeah, what what happened really to to uh, to the memory of that uh, of, of that ge- um, ritual geology?
1: No, I mean it's. Um... It's a really good question. Um it's one that you know I struggled with a lot during the research and writing of this book. Um and it's a testament to some of the really deep erasures that have happened in regards to much of of African history um, as it is told in the academy, but also as it is told and retold in, in, in you know, some context within West Africa itself. And this is, of course, a legacy in many respects of colonial rule, particularly the early decades of colonial rule, um, but also other complex um, dynamics I think are at play. I think what's interesting is that starting at least even by the Atlantic era with like these kind of travelers, lo- you know, travel logs and this sort of thing of the 18th and 19th century in particular and in the colonial period and in the post-colonial period and in corporate reports today about, um, you know, corporations write reports about artisanal mining activity on there. Um, um, you know, that's that's something that they, that they reference um, in geological reports often. There is an acknowledgement of the antiquity of... Um, gold mining in the region. But in some ways, it's this very archaic Almost and static representation of kind of, oh, you know, thousands of years ago, or like back when there were empires, this sort of mythic removed past, right? This was an industry. So we know that there was gold here, but it's long ago and kind of forgotten and in a way almost abstracted from the contemporary populations that inhabit this region. When in fact, when you really get into the weeds, Folks have never stopped mining gold in this part of the world, but there were periods of time when gold mining was far less important for economic reasons, you know, when gold didn't fetch you know, a good price on markets when agricultural products were far more lucrative. Um, you know, gold, as I talk about in the book, is kind of a famine resource and a drought resource. It's, it's something people often turn to during times of hardship, like when you have good rains and healthy crops and the ability to trade in a lot of different goods, you don't need to mine gold. Mining gold is really hard work. Um, it's unpleasant work in many respects during carried out during the hottest time of the year. Um, so there are periods of time when gold mining recedes as a primary activity. But, you know, those are usually just a gap of like a generation at most. And there's still folks around who know how to mine for gold and where to look for gold. And at least based on the research I did, I think this was very much things that were passed down in families, knowledge that was passed down for future generations that might need to access these gold fields. Right. So. You know, I don't have all of the answers, but it is a very interesting case of the sort of power, um, particularly in this case, I think, of the colonial period and even the early post-colonial period when um, Orpayage was criminalized by most of the leaders to emerge from newly independent West African states. Um, That... That generation, you know, that period of time had a very, very powerful effect on the way histories of gold mining, histories of this resource were talked about, because it was during that period, utterly criminalized and denigrated, Um so, and it was often an occupation of the poor, you know, this wasn't an elite enterprise. So I think that's also really important to who passes on these histories. Um, it's one thing to talk about the empire of Mali. It's another thing to pass on the histories of people who were doing grunt work, digging for gold and, you know, were likely also um, relatively poor farmers. Um you know they weren't nobles and 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 kings and this sort of thing. And as is the case um, with much of African history, it's it's far harder to recuperate those histories in the historical record because they didn't leave documents. They weren't passed along by griots. A lot of these folks were part of highly decentralized, small, smaller scale societies that didn't have oral traditions that were passed down um, across the span of hundreds of years. Sometimes genealogies were were much shallower. So there's all these kinds of obstacles. Not only to reconstructing the historical record, but the ways within these West African states that gold mining has been spoken about, whether it's been valorized and claimed as crucial to national or regional heritage, or been denigrated or seen as something that's kind of unseemly, you know, or criminal or problematic. Um, and it is problematic. We haven't, you know, have time for that, you know, in the present day. Um, you know, there's there's enormous concerns around the ecological um, consequences of artisanal gold mining, particularly when it's highly unregulated and um, you know, etc. Um, but, you know, one of the, 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 the core goals of this book was to resuscitate this deep history um, that in many ways has um, been sort of for reasons that are both clear and not clear to me, um, you know, marginalized from the center of African history. Um, even though scholars are now kind of Scholars, at least, have a great interest in medieval Africa again and in the trans-Saharan trade. Um, but yeah, these things kind of have a way of going in cycles. <laughs> I, I think
0: this uh, this is very interesting. Of course, the the book has this uh, intention of, uh, as you mentioned, as you just mentioned, the, to resurrect this this uh, deep uh, these deep history of of ritual geology. Uh, but I think it, it goes further than that, uh, especially because the book is framed. If you take, uh, especially the uh, the first chapter, as I mentioned, on the um, Tinkoto village uh, and the temporary set, uh, um, situation there, uh, and the conclusion, uh, where uh, in both cases you mentioned a specific uh, ritual, a part of the ritual uh, named the Kurutala Luno, right? Or the Day of Division of Rocks. Um, and I think, uh, so I- I'd like you to obviously uh, elaborate a little bit on what this Day of Division of Rocks is, but my bigger question is. Um, it, it seems like your book is not so much about just resurrecting that history, but it's also about reevaluating its potential, uh, its potential value in thinking about or imagining a more sustainable um, usage of geological resources, but also more equitable uh, system of redistribution of these uh, resources as well. It, it, at least it seems like to me there is that practical concern uh, going through, uh, the book. Uh, so maybe you can correct me on this, uh, or, uh, but I let you expand a little bit on that day of division of rocks and where that question of, uh, equity and sustainability maybe, uh, fit in your book.
1: Yeah, no, thank you for that question. I really appreciate it. So, um, before I talk about the Kurutala Luno, (laughs) the day of the division of rocks, um, just to the broader point you're you're raising here, which is that I, yes, this this very much isn't just a resuscitation of a history for the sake of history, um, but it is also written in a context in a rather urgent present where many of these gold fields are now being mined by transnational mining corporations, whose Primary goal is to deplete gold completely from a particular surface of the earth. And once that's that's over, it's you know, it's done. Like this resource um, is a non-renewable resource. There is a bit of a zero-sum game here. You know, um, while more and more gold continues to be discovered in the region, it is being mined at a breakneck pace, um, both by corporations and by orpire Um, and you know, that won't continue on forever. Um, it will be depleted. And, um, something I became really interested in during my research was sort of different West African understandings of, um, I mean, what we could gloss as conservation or, a, you know, I think conservation might be a bit more, apt than sustainability. And I don't mean this in terms of conservation in a sort of, you know, the way it's defined by UNESCO or a major park or that kind of thing, but different notions and ideologies about the importance of leaving resources for the future, right? And um, it, it, that, and also the importance of resources being divided in a just way amongst uh, many, many people um, that might potentially have a claim to it. So... Um, to to return to the Kurutaloluno, which is the Day of Division of Rocks, this is the day um, when a mining team has completed the mining of a a given shaft where all of the rock and the gravel um, and the auriferous sand is put into a single pile and um, a, a young child who is believed to be kind of untainted by bias is selected to be part of the ceremony and everybody puts an object that corresponds with their person into the middle and the child selects objects and begins to put piles of well she directs she directs people to put piles of rocks next to these objects, and slowly this rock is divided amongst the workers but there's a whole other set of divisions that go into this you know um there's a certain amount of rock that's set aside for the chief of the village, for the ritual overseers of the mine, for the uh police force of the mine, sometimes for the police force of the Senegalese state who makes a claim to the rock um but also for. Um, the impoverished um, for those who are disabled and unable to mine for gold are able to come to the day of division of rocks and ask for a portion of the mining shaft. And then individual mining team members will take this rock home where it will then be subdivided again, potentially many, many times um, amongst their wives or girlfriends, children in some cases, um, aunts and uncles, people that need it in order to pay for um, the construction of their homes or caring for an ill loved one. Um, So, you know, by following these ceremonies, by following the way that this rock was divided, it just became so clear the, the many, 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 many people that potentially benefit from a single mining shaft, right? Or who have a claim to this part of the earth. And this the, the intense pressure that's on individuals mining in this context, um, these are orpire, to subdivide this rock across all of these different constituents, including across spirits, right? So including paying for sacrifices, playing Paying for, you know, um, ritual um, amends of various sorts. Um, so here, embedded in this there are discursive ideologies about the importance of dividing rock amongst people, but the practice itself of subdivision and the practice of people coming and claiming their portion of rock also speaks to a certain kind of ethic here, right? Like this is far from an individualized endeavor. This is deeply social. Um, You know, gold rock is by definition something that can be subdivided almost endlessly and washed and prepared in various means, um, much in the way that folks do with agricultural um, uh, produce, you know, I mean, after the harvest, um, giving it to the poor, the needy, different relatives, et cetera. So in this way, gold is very much incorporated into the kind of moral economy of these agrarian spaces in very sophisticated ways that I tried to understand in the book um, and tried to understand what the implications of or what that might offer as an alternative, right? Or if nothing else, a complementary view to how we might think about extraction. Um, And I at least try not to present this in a celebratory way or saying like, oh, this is definitely the solution to how extraction gets played out. But that's simply alongside industrial modernity, if you will, or alongside the hyper vertical integration of the corporate mining industry have been these other ways of dealing with extraction that operate. In dialogue with these corporations, not as some hermetically sealed system, but that have their own logics and that have their own ethics about how to engage with the earth, that are worthy of consideration, as as a you know collective like society, we head into a time of. Um, the depletion of so many resources, right? You know, this is the end of of cheap nature um, that our generation is is witnessing, and ecological crisis, of course. And the mining industry has always been right at the heart and center <laughs> of those developments. Um, so, you know, it felt like an opportunity given that I've told this whole history to ask what can this history also to meditate a bit on what this history might also offer us as, as, a model, you know, for the future, or as a model of thinking about extraction and different ways that it can be carried out, you know, not in a celebratory way that suggests, oh, this is definitely an alternative to corporations. I mean, many people in these settings do want corporate mining; they just don't want corporate mining to be the only show in town, you know. So it's also thinking about. Um, how these resources can be subdivided in complementary ways that allow for different kinds of regimes of extraction um, that don't just follow um, a model deeply rooted in the kind of rise of, of Western capitalism and the vertical integration of monopoly capitalism, sorry, um, monopoly corporations.
0: Thank you so much for, for, for that, for for that, uh, that answer. And if I could just give you one final question uh, for, uh, to end this interview, I, I, I was particularly drawn to uh, the book because um, there are a lot of um, new publications in the in the couple in a couple of years that deal with the, the history of geology, uh, paleontology, uh, earth sciences in general, uh, and and mining as well that are really taking uh, I would say. Uh, not the same approach as yours, obviously, uh, because they come from different fields, and, uh, but, but very analogous, or at least there's a lot of echoes between uh, your work and, and theirs. And I'm thinking of, for example, historian of science, uh, Chakrabarty, Patrick Chakrabarti's uh, Inscriptions of Nature. I'm thinking also of the uh, uh, geographer, uh, Catherine Youssef, uh, A Billion Black Anthropocene or Non, uh, which, in which she discusses uh, quote unquote white geology. But I'm also thinking about Alison Bigelow's um, book on mining language, uh, about uh, um, uh, the knowledge of uh, South um, American uh, populations uh, in the early modern period. So I, I think uh, your book clearly uh, fits into that conversation. So w- where, where do you see uh, exactly it fit? how do you situate yourself uh, uh, or how do you situate your book Um Relative to these to these new publications,
1: yeah, I mean, I it's been a really exciting conversation that has been emerging. You know, as I sort of completed this manuscript, and in many ways, the books, um, uh, with with the exception of Catherine Yusuf's book, which has been out for for a number of years now, were sort of being published. You know, as I as I sort of finished the manuscript, and I was I was a little bit slow to the table on some of these conversations as well because I had been really committed in this book to trying to understand West African engagements with the underground, you know, not just West African at large, but specifically um, lineages of folks who had engaged with Orpayage in some cases over the course of of generations. So I think in part, what distinguishes my work, but where I also see this being really ripe for, um, you know, deepening a conversation about the history of geology, but one that's really expanding what that term could mean, is that I was interested in sort of geological thinking primarily among West African miners and reconstructing those kinds of regional epistemologies of knowledge. Um, in this case, subterranean knowledge, um, was something that I hadn't seen done as much, um, at large in the history of geology, which has still tended to be about, um, geology with a capital G, you know? Um, so either, you know, um, in terms of like the discipline, the scientific discipline of geology. And I have chapters in the book that are very much part of that conversation that are very much reconstructing what geology as a discipline that called itself geology looked like in um, french-speaking West Africa during the colonial period the ways in which West African miners and blacksmiths contribute to shaping it and how it looked and in independent um, West Africa as well and I have much more that I you know want to write and say about that 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 kind of didn't figure into the book but I think for me where um, you know, so I, I think where this literature, where I've really benefited from it is the ways that they're, you know, thinking about geology, but also attention to the vertical and like volumetric, um, assessments of, of resources, whether that volumetric approach be to water or to minerals or to the sky. And again, there's a lot of other geographers in particular that are thinking through these, through these concepts in really interesting ways. Um, the ways in which that shaped, um, colonialism, the ways in which it shaped, um, in particular, racist often or highly ethnicized, um, you know, or um, ethnic visions of different landscapes, how um, emergent understandings of geology amongst European or European trained um, or naturalists and earth scientists came to to shape profoundly the colonial encounter and ethnological knowledge, you know, knowledge about people as well. So I found Pratik's book to be really, really inspirational in that respect. And I think the work that Catherine Yusuf is doing, which is to really destabilize and critique to show that geological knowledge and its participation in imperialism and ultimately in some ways in slavery and the, you know, rendering certain kinds of people immaterial um, and objectifying them is 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 really crucial work, you know, to um, underscoring the racist origins of, of of so many scientific disciplines. And geology had been sort of like among the last to fall, like if you will, for whatever reason, you know, in that conversation. And I draw on, you know. Um, I draw on their work and I, you know, have, have taken a lot of inspiration from it and how I approach and think about geological knowledge, geology with a capital G or white geology, um, as Yusuf coins it. But the primary burden of my work, again, was to show what geological knowledge and thinking looked like in West Africa, but to still call it geological thinking in order to flatten that term and put it in the same conversation as what scientists from Europe are doing, you know, or self fashioned scientists or, you know, whoever, and what an orpire is doing, you know, that they are both engaging in creating an epistemological regime that has, you know, um, evidence-based practices and um, ways of like empirically testing and mapping the underground and um, and this sort of thing, um, albeit with very different tools and and discourses surrounding them. So, you know, I'm still learning from this conversation, it's very exciting. There's um, a lot of really, really interesting work coming out as well by anthropologists. There's kind of an emergent ethnography of exploration geology uh, that I think is quite ripe for sort of rethinking what we mean when we talk about extractive frontiers. They're actually exploration frontiers. The amount of space that is taken up by mining as such is is very narrow compared to the amount of exploration that's happening. And I think there's a new generation of, of anthropologists and I think it would be exciting to see more work of this nature by historians as well, thinking about what are the political economies of spaces that have been subject to intense exploration, you know? Um, And so that very much dovetails also with the history of the field sciences and this kind of thing. Um, But I think we're just starting to really ask those questions for the history of geology. And I'm excited to see where folks take this conversation. And I still feel that I have a lot to learn from it.
0: Oh, thank you so much. And I, I, I love this uh, the ending our, our conversation on this on these prospects and the fact that it is an ongoing uh, conversation. So once again, thank you so much uh, for joining me uh, and uh, for joining the New Books Network. That was absolutely a fantastic conversation. Thank you again.
1: Thank you, Victor. It's been my pleasure. I'm really an honor to be here with you.